That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Happy Friday. I'm Heidi Hatch with KUTV, joined alongside the illustrious Greg Hughes. Hello. Now a lobbyist. It's a dirty word that's got more than four letters. I'm a consultant. A uh, consultant. Heidi, that word. That word. Uh, you're right. That word's a pejorative. You know, I'm a consultant. I'm a government relations consultant. That's what I am. That's right. And also joining us is Representative Brian King. Thank you so much for being here today. And Willing to put up with Greg Hughes. And, well, and, and that's no small issues. thing. That's no, no small thing, Heidi. Thank you no. for having me. Yes, thank you for being Very here. Very brave. So uh, just in case people don't watch the legislative session religiously or are not what? as involved in Utah politics huh? as they should be, right? I know. Who's not watching? Yeah. Tell us a couple of fun facts about you. Well, I uh, am the minority leader for the House Democrats. Um, I've served in the legislature since 2009. So uh, I, I suppose I'm sort of a veteran. Uh, Greg would say that I am long in the tooth, and he'd probably be right about that. A little long I, in the tooth. It's true. I came in in 03, though, so. Yeah, you, yeah you were, there you go. Were you there 15 years? 16. 16. That's a serious commitment. Yeah. So I also, uh, born and raised here in uh, Salt Lake City, went to the University of Utah, undergraduate and for law school, served a two-year mission to St. Louis, Missouri for the LDS Church, and I converted to an LDS, or rather to a St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan. I like that. While you were there, were you allowed to watch baseball on your mission? I, or went, you just... I went to a couple of games on nice. our preparation days. So anyway, came back here, opened up a law practice after going to law school. I've practiced law ever since. I represent folks who've had denied life, health, and disability claims. I sue insurance companies, so... There's a bit of David versus Goliath mentality to what I'm doing in my law practice, which dovetails nicely into being a Democrat in the Utah State Legislature. <laughs> Are well, you right, Greg, you, you laugh, but I'm, I mean, the odds of David and Goliath might be true, but, but biblically, David was the good guy. So I'm really confused by your your comparison. That's I don't why understand. it works so well, man. That's why it works so well. <laughs> good guys and bad guys. Well, I'll, hopefully, uh, we can all be good guys in here and have a great conversation about uh, some things going on. Uh, we were talking about how life never slows down. The legislature never seems to slow down. Uh, there was a couple. I think few actually audits that were getting talked about this week. Uh, Representative King, you were there talking about them. One of them uh, was the Utah legislative audits. And Greg, I'm going to let you go first on this one because there's been ongoing frustration since um, President Biden won the election and that um, one-time president, number 45, President Trump, did not win said election. Uh, there's been questions about election integrity, and I think in some states there have been some real questions where, you know, those states should be looking at those problems and fixing those problems. There's been concern here in Utah with those questions of just going in and having an audit because uh, there were no signs of foul play or outward sure. problems. So Majority Leader Mike Schultz um, is the one, I believe, who called for this audit. He says this audit doesn't have anything to do with President Trump, but really just making sure that people in Utah know their elections are fair and safe. Do you believe that's what this is, or is this trying to fulfill the larger 
I don't know if the word's narrative, but kind of go across the country um, yeah. from some Republicans who say, you know, let's go through and audit this last election and look back at the last. Hi, and I think Brian will concur with this. A lot of uh, our constituents are when I when I served as a public servant, constituencies, uh, some of their opinions about local issues are colored by the national narratives of what's happening around the country. I think that the last election uh, did have some uh, issues about elections, or at least that was a very, very strong narrative, which I think in turn has people wondering, is vote by mail? When you move from a very strict chain of custody of voting at a voting location where the ballot that you cast, be it electronic with the paper ballot that you see on the side or a, a, a physical ballot, it never leaves the possession of the clerk and is then counted versus vote by mail. Um it's different. And there is, at least with that chain of custody not being as the same as it was, you could ask those questions. I think Utah let out with vote by mail early. So we, we weren't, there wasn't a, I don't think there was a, a deep seated cynicism about it. But when you saw that national question and you saw some of the states uh, start implementing vote by mail uh, just in, in the 2020 election cycle, I think those worries and those, that commentary then turned the focus on Utah's process. And what I'd say is, and Brian knows this, that legislative audit committee goes over issues, all kinds of issues. And in fact, it's it's one of the things that I think is one of the, the secrets about the legislative branch that I wish people understood more, that these audits are, are very positive and they ha- they're ongoing. We have the legislature has a legislative audit, uh, an office for audits. And, and so these are going on all the time and they're usually discovering flaws. Uh, they're performance audits and they can you can you can find things to, to let, let government do things better. With the narratives that are going on, with the worry of, of our vote by mail, uh, I think it's very healthy to, to have that audit. We don't want to over, overturn the election. We don't have a, an outcome that we don't like. I love the fact that Trump won. I love the fact that Burgess Owens beat Ben McAdams. I love the Wait, fact so that we rewind. bought— you, you think Trump won the last election? In the state of Utah. Okay. In the state of Utah, we are a good state yes. to audit our processes because we do not fall— uh, to that fall prey to, or fall victim to the argument that we just want to audit because we want to overturn the outcome of our state's election. So that's why we're auditing it. We wouldn't be overturning that. Trump won the state of Utah. And so the outcomes, we're not arguing that as Republicans. But to the point of when you don't have that strict chain of custody, when you do mail in a ballot or drop it off at drop-off locations, is that process uh, one that we can depend on, one that we know our votes being counted? I see no problem whatsoever of dispelling the the fears or, or concerns that might be out there. And, you know, we might find most performance audits do that there are practices that can be improved. That's okay. That doesn't mean you, there might be flaws, but it, it, it won't be so fraud, this is but preventative it'll be fine. medicine for sure. great use. I, look, I just, again, I think our state is well positioned. We do audits. We look at the processes already. We don't want to see any of the outcomes in the, our November elections reversed. At least I don't. I, you might, but... <laughs> Brian, but but anyway, I just I just think that th- this is a, the right state to do those things and and show and they, at the end of this audit, I trust these auditors are nonpartisan, uh, that, so they work for both the majority and the minority parties of both in the House and Senate. When they come forward with what they have looked at, we can depend on it. The citizens of Utah can depend on those findings, and I think that will ultimately raise a level of confidence in our process. So Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson has pushed back really hard against this this week, saying, you know, that this can create doubt um, in our elections when we're going in and auditing them. Uh, do you see this differently than Greg here? Does it yeah. does it sow doubt, or is it healthy to go in and, you know, look under the hood and 
you know. Well, well, sure. I mean, look, the legislative auditors look under the hood of a lot of state departments and agencies, including the executive branch and things in the legislature and even the judiciary at times. And, and that's great. But they do it when they need to. In other words, we do it not just for the heck of it or, or because there are unfounded uh, uh, concerns. We do it because there's a legitimate need for it or because you're talking about a department or an agency that hasn't been audited in a long time. The reality is that our state uh, elections here and our county elections are very well run. The county clerks are the ones who primarily run our election processes here in the state of Utah. We've got 29 county clerks. 28 of them are Republican. Our county clerk in uh, Salt Lake County is a Democrat, Sherry Swenson. She's been around forever, and nobody questions her integrity. She's a machine. She does a great job. Yeah, she does. And those county clerks all do a great job. And there's no suggestion that any of them are uh, using processes that are not uh, uh, what they should be. Now, I do agree with Greg when he says that what we have uh, are federal concerns that have filtered down to the state. And, and I think that the, th- the problem that I have with the audit, and I serve on the audit subcommittee and heard uh, Representative Schultz ask for that audit, I spoke against it and voted against it for the primary reason that our Legislative Auditor General's office is a limited bandwidth. They don't have unlimited resources. They've got to pick and choose. Greg knows this, too, because he was on that audit subcommittee with me for several years. We get numerous requests for audits. I mean, we have to pick and choose as an audit subcommittee which ones we will prioritize and have our legislative auditor general work on. That was my concern, is that they don't have time to do something that isn't necessary. And when you've got the lieutenant governor's office primarily in charge of our elections here in the state of Utah, uh, Governor Cox was the lieutenant governor in the 2020 election. Now uh, former Senator Deidre Henderson is the uh, lieutenant governor. They've both looked at this process thoroughly, and they say, we have no reason whatsoever to think that there are irregularities or procedural problems with how we carry out elections. If, and, and when you talk to Representative Schultz, he said, I, uh, people have said, do you know of any problems? Are there any real issues that you're concerned about? And he says, no, I just want to have somebody look at it. If we had unlimited bandwidth in the le- Legislative Auditor General's office, I'd say, great, we don't. We should use I, that resource to where it's most needed. The, the issue that I think, Brian, that, that you're, you're – not uh, seeing the same as I am is that I think that the concern of the public at large is there's more worry or there's more concern about vote by mail or how voting is taking place. Um, and for, for reasons that are beyond our state, but they certainly do impact the state and it does raise these questions. And I think that we owe it to, and I think your, your branch of government owes it to the public to say, look, we're going to make sure this is right. We're, we hear these concerns. We know there's worry out there that uh, for me, Went back, talk about long in the tooth, back after the 2000 Bush v. Gore race, and then they decided that they didn't want to use the butterfly ballots or anything. And so then I was on a a committee that looked at uh, choosing an electronic voting machine because there was federal money to allow for electronic voting. So this was following pregnant chads, dimpled chads. Yes, remember that? All they didn't, they just didn't empty out the bottom of them Mm -hmm. after an election. And so then when they used a stylus, it wasn't breaking through the ballot. And so... There was federal money. Every state was getting these electronic voting machines. But there was, again, much like you feel today, there was a lot of concern from the public or members of the public saying, wait, if you take away a paper ballot and you do it electronically, we could lose, you know, we, we, we just, wor- they worried that the, that the integrity of that election could process could be undermined. Yeah. So when I was on this committee and we had members of the technology industry or community and uh, or sec- economic sector there, we looked at these different machines and the ones that we landed on as a state and our committee, our subcommittee landed on, was the one that would show the paper ballot that would come up to the right, and you could see. And it would ask you, 
are the way you voted electronically, can you see the that that's how it's printed on the paper? And then you'd say affirmatively, you'd have to say yes. That process, Heidi, when we agreed to it, was understood to be randomly audited. That that paper just it wasn't just there for show, and it wasn't there just to mm-hmm. alleviate concern. There was a a mindset when we were changing that process that we would have these audits, that we would look at those returns, that we would make sure that the that the final tally, you could go and you could take random machines and make sure that the paper ballots matched the final tallies that they were getting from the electronic side. So maybe we should have more audits of, of our election process so that when we have them, everyone doesn't make it so political, but we should be always, we, sh- we should be fine with making sure that the integrity and the processes that we're using counts every eligible person's vote and make sure that their vote isn't diluted by mistakes or someone voting that shouldn't be voting something like that so i think it's healthy i know it's been politicized and i know that's what everyone's worried about but the politics of it really have driven a a cynicism towards our process that i think that you've done a great job and uh whether you were on the right side of that vote or not representative and seeing that audit happen it'll be i think net net it'll be a good thing one audit that did just wrap up was the one that was looking into Utah's prison system health care. And I think it's something that if you don't have a loved one or you don't know anyone who's in the prison, it's probably not something you give a lot of thought to. You think, okay, they did something bad, lock them up and don't think about it. But it is an issue. Um, and this audit found... Uh, The key finding in the audit from the Utah Legislative Auditor General is that the audit found systemic deficiencies in how the state is delivering health care to prison inmates as it constitutionally is obligated to under the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. What were we doing wrong or what were we lacking? Here's uh, part of the problem is lack of funding, Heidi. What we have is a constitutional obligation as the state of Utah when you uh, imprison someone. You have, and this is well established, a constitutional obligation as the state to ensure that they get the medical treatment that they need. And if you don't do that, you can be sued. You can have yourself opened up to liability in terms of lawsuits from the individual prisoner or their family if they happen to pass away. So there's good reason at many different levels why we have to and why we morally should be providing the best level care. Not the best level in the sense that gold-plated care, but that the care that's provided to prisoners is meeting generally accepted standards of medical treatment, medical practice care in this state. And what we had from the state, from the audit, the legislative audit reflected that we were not having that. We were having failures. We were having multiple points at which uh, individuals who needed care needed to get this. Have uh, step number one happen, then step number two, then step number three, then step number four. There were like seven steps that they identified. Any one of which, if there's a failure to follow them through, follow through with them at the prison, you're going to have uh, people injured or killed. So that's the problem, is that there are systemic deficiencies in the way that we deliver health care to prisoners who say, hey, I've got a problem, I need to get some treatment. And that reflects poorly on us as a state, much less, of course, uh, much more important, rather, is the fact that, you know, the prisoners need help. And we've had instances where prisoners have died or been seriously injured because they haven't gotten the care that they need. Is it because we haven't cared and there's kind of been a shrug of the shoulders being like, okay, well, they're not the nicest person. Why do we have to take care of them? Or is it really a money issue where they need more money to make it happen? The answer is both. There's no question that it's an unsympathetic uh, population of people. I mean, we all have a tendency, I think, at some level in some way to think, well, they must be a worse person at some moral level than a person who's not in prison. Or they must have deserved 
be deserving of what they get because we don't have to treat them in the same with the same level of respect and with the same level of resources that we do someone who's not in prison. I mean, there are a lot of uh, we we project onto this group of people a lot of uh, negative connotations, and that's a problem. But we also, as a state, running the prisons and allocating the resources and the taxpayer money to run the prisons we're reluctant to spend on that population in the way that we should be. And I think most, one of the things that we dealt with up the legislature, and Greg knows this very well, we would have, I sat on the Executive Offices and Criminal Justice Appropriations Subcommittee, which was the committee that made recommendations to the Executive Appropriations Committee about the Department of Corrections. And we would have Department of Corrections leaders come in and say to us, guys, we are paying our people who work in our prisons so little compared to even regular police officers or highway patrol troopers. It's a tough job. Oh, yeah. it's a tough job. And and you can't expect to attract a high-quality person who's going to stay there and be really committed to do a great job when they're getting less than counterparts doing other work that isn't even as difficult as working in a prison. So a big part of this is uh, the, the quality of the staff that we have. A big part of it is making sure that we have enough of them and that they're paid well enough. So there are many, many ways in which we can improve our delivery of services there. And you've been working um, with uh, some of the police on some of the reforms and whatnot. And I think we all know that very few people go to prison for a lifetime. Most of them are there for a few years or even months, and they're back in society. So we want to take care of people, and we want to rehabilitate them the best we can so they can go out and be contributing members of society. Because if you treat them like... They're we, not. We, yeah, we don't need a graduate just, school yeah. for criminality. We yeah. can't have people going no. in there just becoming no. more hardened criminals yeah. because most people that go in do come out. Or, right. or th- Yeah, exactly. Or thinking that, well, out of sight, out of mind. Once they're yeah. in there, they're not going to come back yeah, out. They, they are going to come back out. And they're going to come back out Almost better or do. worse. Yeah. And we want them to come back out better and able to contribute more to society as quickly as possible so, and take care of themselves and their yeah. families. So and this matters. So this, the, I am so glad that this, I didn't know this audit was going on, but I am, I think it is very, very timely. I, I love that. Cause again, this highlights what, how the purpose of having legislative auditors, it's coming out right before your general session. And there has been uh, an issue with the funding for healthcare in our correctional facilities in the state of Utah. I came into that issue um, after my public service, understanding it a little bit better, helping and advising our sheriffs. Because there is this jail contracting, as you know, where some state inmates will be contracted and, and they'll, be, they'll be incarcerated in a county jail. We found out that during my time and our time when we served together in the legislature, when we saw that line item for jail contracting, the, 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 correctional facility, the uh, Department of Corrections was holding back a lot of that money for contracting to pay for health care. Mm. They were, used, they were stealing from Peter to pay Paul, not stealing in a, I don't mean in a negative way, but what I'm saying is the budgets were so tight and the health care delivery was so. Hey, we just got to be honest because there's not a lawmaker that's aware that that contracting money is being used is fungible and is going to other places. So if healthcare is an issue, we got to put bright lights on that and make sure that it's prioritized. And that was last year. This audit confirms that that's absolutely the case. And it needs to have a higher priority in the budget process to make sure that that healthcare is, uh, is, is budgeted for and that their corrections is not looking at other sources of funds that from their department to pay for their healthcare uh, to the detriment of the other priorities they have. So I, I thought it was a very timely uh, 
audit and I even if corrections felt you were in the you were in that committee hearing it's never fun to be no, you know they, the, they, the, the we, responding I, agency. I got after them a little bit and it, and and here's the reality they're in a very difficult circumstance because they don't want to see folks out in the prison treated badly they really no, don't they don't these are people who want to do the right thing for the right reason but they are stretched thin as can be in many ways and we need to do a better job as a society to support them. And we need to do a better job as taxpayers to be willing to have the legislature appropriate money for that. So while it was tough for them to go through and being a responding agency is never comfortable, this will in the long run strengthen the Department of Corrections because I think this will be what they need to make the, the request, the appropriations request to see health the health care yeah. line item uh, increased. And, and, and to follow up on Greg's point there, this is another really high point of our legislative auditor general's office. The audits that they come out with then serve as the catalyst many times for legislation That's right. to change existing law. Many times, as Greg's alluding to, for uh, appropriation subcommittees in the executive appropriations committee, which makes the final recommended recommendations for the budget to the legislature as a whole, to appropriate money where it's necessary. on deficiencies that makes the appropriate because there's so many demands whatever you have by way of surplus in a year you'll have three times that amount in requests so you have to prioritize it this audit will do a, a good job in, in prioritizing it the right way well speaking of that the governor came out governor cox came out with his uh, proposed budget and i think a lot of people when they hear about the proposed budget i think they forget about the process just when you're listening at home and you're like okay well this is what we're going to get it's not what you're going to get it's a wish list uh, but governor cox made a point to go out to the great salt lake to make his announcements about his budget and a 45 million uh, proposal to help protect specifically the great salt lake and drought relief and hundreds of millions um altogether using some of the extra COVID relief funds to help in general with drought in the state. Uh, is this a surprise to you that this was his top priority that he wanted to use as his pitch? Or is this something that we have to be caring about and thinking about whether you're a Republican or Democrat in the state of Utah? I think it's good. I think it's actually, I think it's great. I think this drought is a very serious issue for our state. And I think that it, that the calling attention to it and, and, and the, and the governor's budget, uh, showing what the executive branch's priority is and what they would hope to see come from the budget process that the legislative branch will go through uh, is important. I'll, you know, I, I joke, we were teasing before the show started, that the governor can, without any public hearings and then closed doors with department heads, come up with any budget he'd like to with, because it doesn't have a process. The legislative process during the general session has public hearings. And we're in some states, they just have like a Ways and Means Committee where just one committee hears everything that the, the state's going to spend on. Utah narrows it down. You mentioned the criminal justice and executive offices. You have higher education. You have public education. You have subcommittees for appropriations where a number of Senate, state senators and representatives become very knowledgeable about the budgets of the state in certain areas. And then you have the public hearings where you have people come and speak to the, the budget or the budget request. All of that context comes into recommendations that then go to executive appropriations. I love that process, and you wouldn't want. I would argue you wouldn't want a, a state budget that was uh, that was crafted or passed that didn't go through a process like that. But what the governor's budget does is it shows where their priorities are. So it, you, even their department heads, it kind of tells them what they should be asking for or not asking for too much. It kind of gives them kind of their blueprint for how their departments will be approaching the legislature in terms of their asks for appropriations. Yeah. And so it's a healthy process. It's good that the governor makes a budget and shows the legislature and the public what they believe are the
I thought it was a smart way to pitch his budget because uh, this was the day before we got this major snowstorm that came yesterday. And we're also used to in Utah talking about lake effect snow. Well, when your lakes dry up, there's no more lake effect snow. So there's so much in this domino effect when we're in a drought situation that really is something that we have to pay attention to. Was this a smart move for the governor or or was there something else you would have preferred to see his top bucket list item as the sell? No, actually, uh, I, I think it was a smart move by the governor. Uh, we've we've heard a lot of information uh, over the last few months. Shrinking, and it's a, a concern. And the more we learn about the Great Salt Lake, the more we have as a, a reason to be concerned. And it, because it has such an impact on the quality of life for everybody. You know, uh, we live in the Salt Lake Valley. People are going to be listening to this, uh, you know, down in Utah County or up in Cache County perhaps, and they're going to say, that doesn't affect me. It's not right there. No, it isn't not right there. But if you have the Great Salt Lake go away or dry up to a meaningful degree, you're going to change the quality of life in a way that all of us are going to hate. We're going to have, uh, we think we have air quality problems now. We'll really have air quality problems then. It'll change the climate along the Wasatch Front. Mm-hmm. Everybody's telling us how, how, informing us, sensitizing us, educating us about how critically important this is. And I, it's interesting, you mentioned, Heidi, that this is not something that's partisan, and you're absolutely right. I was uh, speaking with uh, Brad Wilson, the Speaker of the House, a few months ago, and I said, boy, I'm sure worried about the Great Salt Lake. And he said, dude, me too. And, and I think the more information people get the more likely they are to recognize we've got a problem on our hands and so it's a big part of this is educating people to the need to not divert resources away from the great salt lake we've got in fact a drought condition here we don't know how long it's going to last that alone puts stress on the lake that may cause uh, permanent damage but when you add to that diversion of water from places like the bear river or from the Weber River, or from Ogden River, or from any of the rivers that feed into the Great Salt Lake for agriculture that isn't necessary or for home development that isn't necessary, that's a problem. The reality is that the greatest portion of the water that goes into the Great Salt Lake is used for agriculture. Yeah. And, it's just and, not making it there right now, and right. it's because everything else is empty. Right. So we, we don't realize the yeah. small degree to which development of residences, uh, they're, they're, the the way that we landscape them can use a lot of water but residential use alone for our culinary water and almost i wouldn't say insignificant but it's less than five or ten percent of the uh, water that we use along the wasatch front and the reality is we've got to figure out better ways to conserve we've got to figure out better ways to landscape we've got to figure out ways to more proactively keep the great salt lake healthy absolutely we have to farm and we have to eat there's just a lot of important things and remember that the the, the challenge is we're a growing state if your if your population was staying steady uh there's you have a different set of circumstances in terms of how you get water and Mm -hmm. how you deliver water but if you're a growing state you grow from within high birth rate but then you have a lot of migration into our state uh, that it that that puts a lot of strain on how the infrastructure works and how you have yeah. water for that kind of growth because the growth is coming they're not asking permission it's just growing it's true so how do you do it it's true i, I look back and i remember i don't know if you guys did but i swam in the great salt lake when i was younger because there used to be like showers like it was go- like you're yeah. going to the ocean and there's picnic tables i even remember when they had this dock and they had a kind of water slide that went into the water and you could throw a toddler in there because you 
be so buoyant and bounce out. But I mean, it was a different time. And that was, you know, the big floods of 83 and there was all this water and, and the, the pumps that, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Out there. Well, you found out real quick if you had the slightest scratch or a uh, skin break when you put in, went into the great Lake because yes, it did. stung like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And I can't think of anyone like now that's just like, Hey, let's go for a no, swim no. in the great no. salt lake. It doesn't happen. No, <laughs> I know. So uh, big changes. Was there anything else in his budget that stuck out to you or are we still digging? I, I think it. that there were a lot of great things that he talked about. I had a little list. He put a, he had, he uh, increased the WPU, the weighted pay, pupil unit for a public education up to 5%. That's a significant increase from what we usually see. We need mm-hmm. that. Talked about full day kindergarten for the next three years. Love that idea. Talked about rural electrical vehicle charging and, and improving air quality. Talked about rural broadband. Talked about uh, investments in affordable housing, which are really important. So as, as Greg points out, the final decision about the budget will be made by the legislature. And some uh, wags joke that, uh, and it's as much by people in his own party as by Democrats, say that the governor's budget is used for a doorstop or, uh, you know, it's just not <laughs> taken seriously. Greg, being a former speaker, would be able to say some things about that. But the reality is it is a good uh, prompt for us at the legislature to know what the executive branch's priorities are and to get a different perspective many times on uh, what we should be spending our money on. So in that budget, and I haven't gone through it as, as closely as Brian has. Because now you're retired. It's like his, you, you his North care. Star, apparently. Yeah. He just <laughs> loves this budget. I, mean, no, I don't just, love everything. He's like it. going to Governor sleep. Con- he's it's we, his we reading. It's on, his, it's on his nightstand we, at we, night. <laughs> and he just wants to read it every night. He's just like writing the governor love letters because he loves it so much. Jeez. Wow, this is sexy. But, no, <laughs> but here's no. what I... You look in that budget. We talk, Everything we just discussed about the, the strain on water or housing or whatever we're talking about. This state... I am telling you cannot continue to grow where 80% of the population lives in four counties out of 29. If that's all we ever do, if we just maintain that trajectory and we just keep trying to shoehorn all of our population, all of our water, all of our needs into just the Wasatch front, it's a Valley. It doesn't, it doesn't sprawl. It's not sustainable. We need to see the water infrastructure and the economic growth spread out into the rest of the counties of our state. If we want to see our young kids not get up and leave because they can't afford to live in Utah any longer because the cost of living along the Wasatch Front is so high or the quality of life is so bad. No, I, so agree, I agree with that. that I think, I think show me that in that budget where we are starting to branch out because we have to. We cannot keep everybody living within the Wasatch Front. Te- technology and rural brand, broadband, things like that, are, are a good indication of how it is going to become more feasible, hopefully, as time goes on, to do exactly what Greg's talking about here. And I and, agree with and that. And industry, too. I want to see the, the ability for technology and those things, but I want to see industry arrive in the in these rural areas we have a lot of cargo flow we have a lot of you know our our our, tra- our rail and our, our interstate highways there's a lot of cargo flow that we could capture uh for industry and i just think that we have to see those economies grow if we want to if we're worried about the water and yep. water consumption well, or about the different issues that we're, yeah. we're that are impacting us i think we're all worried about it and then the question is you know where does the money go and can we afford everything we want yeah so sh- there's no doubt one last thing before we leave the budget heidi that i'd be remiss if we didn't talk oh about he has to talk more about the bio here we go 
I'm just, I'm just kidding. He's going to talk about the, <laughs> new, favorite budget. the new bill for Louis his, Vuittons for his, everyone. <laughs> no, I'm going to talk about the governor's proposal for a grocery tax credit to address the sales tax burden that exists on, that's most uh, burdensome for those who are really struggling to make ends meet and literally put food on the table. I thought that was interesting. I was grateful to see it. It was a significant, appropri- not appropriation because we do that, the legislature, but it was a significant request from the governor, $160 million to address that burden burden of uh, eliminating the sales tax of uh, f- on food, particularly for those who are struggling to, to make ends meet. I don't know that I agree that that's the best way of doing it. A tax credit that I was going to ask you that. On are, there, are, are low-income accountants, are low-income families, do they have the accountants? Totally do they have the dude. people ready to do it? I mean, totally I just... Dude. I, I mean, I'm, that, that's the concern. Is, yeah. is this really going to be getting the water to the end of the road? That, so you'd have to fine. save your receipts from every grocery shopping trip to make that work and then well, add it I don't up know at the end that of the year? I don't know that you have to do that, Heidi, but you do have to file at the end of each mm. year or at some time during the year in order to get the tax credit back. And Greg's point is the, my point, too which is how many of the people who need it the most are really in a position to jump through those kind of hoops. And not we'll very be many. aware of the, of the, of the claim to, or the credit to claim and in its amount. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, I think I, you could do the I, same thing. The end of the row, you said it best. I, that's the only thing you worry about is because I love the idea that that's, it's really targeted and it yeah. should be. And it I, I, be. I agree with that. I think I just, one thing you could do is, is, is eliminate the sales tax on food and then figure out, you know, build it back into your income tax structure depending on how much a person earns so that a person who earns, you know, more than 60, 70, $80,000 is not getting the benefit of that. They're, they're still paying and into the income tax, but the people who really need the benefit of an elimination of the sales tax on food, get it. Yeah. All right. Well, one thing I want to talk about really quickly coming up in the new legislative session that'll start at the beginning of the year. I worked on a story over the last few months that finally aired on Monday night about a Utah physician and an emergency room doctor. His name is Dr. Scott Jolly, and he's a fairly long and um, complex case, but ultimately he ended up taking his own life um, in the middle of the pandemic uh, when he was feeling under the pressures of everything that he had to do when all I think we we thought all hands were on deck, but there were a lot of doctors from physicians groups who were at home wishing they were at work making more money, and the doctors that were there were extremely overworked. And ultimately, he had to seek care from his own hospital. And I, his, as his wife tells it, that's really kind of what the straw that broke the camel's back when he had to go get mental health care from the doctors he worked with day in and day out, um, sending his own patients. So Representative Ellison has met um, with his uh, widow, Jackie, and also his best friend, Dr. Miles Greenberg, and they're trying to pass a bill that would make it so that insurance companies would have to pay so that there would be no extra money out of your pocket where you could go out of the system and get that uh, mental health care treatment. It's probably something most of us don't think about. Mental health care treatment's hard enough to get for anyone on any given day, but if you're having to go to someone um, inside your own hospital system and admit that you're having problems, you're probably worried about uh, what's going to happen at work, if you can keep your job, and so many other things. Um, Representative King, is this something you deal with insurance agencies? It sounds like they're the 900-pound gorilla. Is this something they're going to be willing to let pass through the legislature so we can get our doctors this help? Or is this going to be a big fight coming up in January? Well, uh, Steve Ellison is a great representative on this issue. Greg and I have worked with him for years. He cares deeply about mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And he's done tremendous good work on this area. Yes. 
And, and if anybody can get that through, he can. But there, to the extent that there are going to be additional costs that are significant on insurance companies, it's difficult for them not to come out and oppose that kind of legislation. I've got my own bill that I've been working with um, uh, to increase access and uh, availability of mental health care. And it's getting some pushback from them because they don't like that idea. I think we can address that quite honestly because we were talking earlier um, off, off air about the fact that we are more and more coming becoming uh, sensitized and aware of the need to address these issues in order to allow people to be as functional as we would like them to be, to be as contributing to our society as we would like to. Yeah. And so there's an upside to making sure that we address these mental health and addiction uh, issues, uh, substance use disorder issues more effectively because it's going to allow individuals to care for themselves and their families to a greater extent. So I think that we have to understand that and and be uh, converted to the idea that there is a big upside. It's win-win-win when we effectively address the kinds of issues that many times are much more difficult to identify than medical or surgical issues. I mean, when somebody, when Johnny is crying and you take him to the hospital because he fell off the swing and you're worried that he broke his arm, you can take an x-ray, put it on the board, see is the arm broken or not. Mm -hmm. You can't ascertain as quickly or as accurately or as with the same level of confidence, what kind of mental, emotional issues someone's dealing with. Of course, if they've got substance use disorder questions or problems, addiction problems, that manifests itself in other ways that sometimes is pretty obvious. But still, we need to come up with a better way of addressing these things. And I think it's just a question of getting more information to the point that people understand how much of a payoff there is in doing that. It doesn't actually cost taxpayer money. It, it gains taxpayer money. Yeah. And mental health care, until we start thinking of it as just being health care, it's just going to be an uphill battle. Uh, the interesting part I look at is any pushback to make sure that our doctors are as healthy as possible because I worry anytime I go in for a procedure or a surgery, I want to go in and interview my doctor. I'm like, have you had a good night's sleep? Did you eat your breakfast? You want them on their game when you're having your worst day. Yeah. Why would we not want them, you know, feeling their best, willing to come forward and get the help they needed so that when you need help, they can do their best work. Well, hats off to you, Heidi. I don't know if this is a, an area that you just specifically look, but you have done some investigative reporting on health issues. Uh, and, and it's, it's cross the board, but, but you don't know what you don't know. And I, in, in all my years, I just had never really put it together. You know, doctors can become ill. Doctors can, you know, physicians can get They're sick human. themselves. They're yeah. human beings. We're talking about human beings. And when I saw the, the story that you shared and that with, with the viewers about someone who doesn't want to be treated by their, their peers about, especially about a sensitive issue as their, their mental well being and their mental health. And I, I, I immediately could empathize. I could, I understood why you wouldn't want to like, I wouldn't, if I was in the legislature, I would never want Brian King to know, you know, <laughs> that I was suffering from any kind of, you know, problem Come because on, he man. would just, it would be, I would be so oh. embarrassed by it. So, but you know, I just, it humanizes, our healthcare, when when we when we see sides of it we've not seen before, you're bringing that to light. I think that Representative Edelson, as is, is, Representative King has just mentioned, he is he spent a lot of his time as a public servant working on public policy in this regard, in this issue, on these issues issues like this. So, I think good things are going to come out of this session. I think there's going to be some answers, and I I think it I'm, I'm optimistic as you are that our healthcare providers will see the human issue here and find solutions so that people can get the help they need without harming their profession or their career uh, and their standing amongst their peers, which is still very important in 
in any job, let alone in a Absolutely. job. Absolutely. One of the things healthcare. that's going to help us on that is I think that some of the legislation that you're seeing come out of, coming out of Congress is uh, allocating funding for that. So that helps us, too, at the state level. Uh, free up more resources to address these kinds of issues because you've got it coming from the federal government. Yeah, the Lorna Breen Act, and I don't know if you recognize her name, but Dr. Lorna Breen, I think, was one of the first physicians, and sadly, first being that there's been so many more um, doctors that took her own life at the first of the suicide, um, at the first... I can't talk. At the first of the pandemic, she worked in New York City at a hospital there. Her family's pushed really hard for legislation and for new money. And I believe it was last night it actually um, passed through the House. It had already passed through the Senate. It's headed to the president's desk. It will probably bring a lot more money, awareness, and ability to, you know, work through some of these hard issues of trying to make sure that the mental health care we need is there. And it's so important. We keep talking about so many different issues, whether it's crime or homelessness or our doctors that need help. Mental health care seems to have a component in all these different pieces of our lives that we've somehow forgotten until now. So yeah. one, of the, my, my, one of the bills that I'm running is to public employers right now can opt out of complying with the Federal Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. Not many people know that, but there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees in the state of Utah who don't have the protection of that Federal Mental Health Parity Act. And that's going to cost some money, and that's going to be the problem, is getting the money to pay for it. But the bill that I'm running is going to prohibit public employers from opting out in a way that will expand access to mental health and addiction equity treatment or addiction I'll be watching that one closely. Um, one quick thing. I know we've got to let everyone go, uh, but I want to touch on gerrymandering real quick. Here in Utah, I'm sure Brian was we ready none of to punch the Greg Hughes in the face, you know, of the world. Because uh, Utah gerrymandered, even the governor admitted, you know, our, we do the best we can, but Republicans are going to gerrymander, Democrats are going to gerrymander, and we've seen that uh, happen in so many states. It's happening right now. Uh, North Carolina's Supreme Court has actually ordered a two-month election delay because of the gerrymandered maps they're saying in the area where they can work through it, figure out the problems. In Maryland, the governor just yesterday vetoed um, their congressional redistricting maps that were passed by the General Assembly there. Uh, governor Hogan said on Thursday, I think gerrymandering Mandarin is a cancer in our democracy. There's no question. Both parties are guilty of it. It happens across the country. Republicans do it just as much as Democrats. Yeah, and Larry Hogan's and a Republican yeah, vetoing a, Republican. A, a Democratic uh, gerrymandered map. And he's actually asking the DOJ to come in and says, come on, investigate us. And usually the governor's not saying come investigate us, but he's mad because the DOJ is going in to Texas where they're looking at gerrymandering there, which is on the flip side of Republicans doing it yep. to Democrats. And so everybody's mad because everybody's making everybody mad. Is this just how our... Here's the problem. Our, we here's, work or can we be fair? Here's the problem, Heidi. The, con- the state constitution in the state of Utah is, is in my mind, and not everyone agrees with me on this. I, the better boundaries folks don't agree with me on this, but I think... The state constitution is very clear in saying it's the legislature that shall do the redistricting. Now, once you say that in our state constitution, it's very difficult to change our state constitution, and you give the legislature the power, you're you're going to have legislators drawing their own maps for the state house and the state senate at least. Now, they're not drawing the, their own maps on the con- congressional maps, but it's it's what I'm my point is. Once you have us drawing our own maps for the state house and the state senate, that is an inherently political process. That's what it becomes. Absolutely. Because we can't be expected to draw our own maps without taking into account ourselves or our colleagues. I mean, 
when the speaker comes to me as the minority leader and says, look, I'm going to appoint some uh, redistricting committee, a legislative redistricting committee. Do you want people on it? Am I supposed to say, no, I won't have a part in this corrupt and inherently political process, Mr. Speaker. So if you you were, go ahead yeah. without me. That's so, not going to yeah, work. No. So if you were the majority leader instead yeah. of the minority leader, would you be gerrymandering the districts for Democrats so you guys could have well, a foothold? Or would you be a fair and balanced? Look, I mean, we're all going to try to... To, I mean, and this is, I served on the redistricting committee back in 2011. I don't know if you did. Were you on that? I, I was, no, I was in leadership, but yeah. I, but I was, we were part of it. We had a much longer process back then too in yeah, 2001 we or well, 2011 versus I think the 21. census kind of screwed exactly. things up yeah. this time. Yeah. Heidi, exactly. Heidi. Anyway, we, we, uh, you know, there, there are principles that you go through in doing good redistricting. And I think in many respects, both in 2011 and this year, we did those principles at the Utah State Legislature. For example, things like compactness and contiguity and uh, districts that were, uh, you know, shaped in natural a way that was boundaries, natural waterways, yeah. county boundaries, of city interest. boundaries. Yeah, and we tried to do that. And, and there are many ways in which I think we accomplished that. The thing that we don't accomplish well when you have yourself drawing your own maps is you can't very easily not protect incumbencies because they're you, they're your friends. And, and if I'd said to the speaker, I'm not going to be a part of this inherently political process, you go do it yourself, he would have said, okay, well, I'm not going to do the same work of protecting Democratic seats that you would do if you were drawing those lines yourself. Now, some people will say, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't even do that. I get it, but the state constitution tells me I'm going to be the one as a legislator drafting those maps. So... Yeah, look, it's it's the worst process ever, except for any other process you can think of. Truly, I mean, these are people that are lawmakers that have been duly elected by the public. Would you put it to a, an unelected commission? Would you have people that were not accountable to a constituency at all decide to do it? Does can anyone honestly say they have no that they're just they're like a computer? They don't have any preference. There's they don't no have one any who's opinion. apolitical out yeah, there. That's right. so, yeah, that's right. So, so if you try to imagine what would you what would you do instead? I'm telling you, having accountable public servants be the ones that have to draw the maps. And you always did. We were under a litigation hold in 2011 where there was the the, the prospect that there may be a lawsuit uh, on our process. I don't think there's a litigation hold this year, but you can there, there's always the you, you're seeing it in these other other states that the courts or other you can go to other places, at least if you think it's been egregious. And I don't think Utah's process is that way, but it, it is it is just part of the legislative branch and those that are elected and the parties that are the majority and the minority, uh, they're going to draw those maps. But I do believe that, uh, as Representative King just mentioned, when you have a committee and the minority party is a member or members of that committee, they're making sure their map, they're not, they're making sure they're not abused and that they're not drawn straight out of existence. And so, I mean, I, I think to get to get anyway, I, I think it's so a good sorry. Process. Everyone's going to gerrymander. Is that the bottom well, line? Well, here? you can call it gerrymander. You can call it drawing your maps as you because you're you're what's happening at least in the state of Utah is our populations are growing. So you're so where it was thirty six thousand uh, people to get to seventy five district house districts uh, ten years ago, it was forty something thousand yeah, this time. So you have more. Pe- you inherently have to redraw these maps. So you know someone can say that's gerrymandering when you draw a line at a certain place, but knowing that inherently you're going to draw these maps and they are going to look different because you have different populations that you have to equally represent, I don't know what else you would do. Here's where Greg and I are going to disagree a little bit, and that is I thought that the state house and the state senate maps were 
influenced by politics to a degree that made me uncomfortable, but that I didn't see an alternative to. But they were far different in terms of the politicization of them, in terms of how gerrymandered they were compared to the congressional map. And I know that uh, because I spoke with members of the redistricting committee this year, and I know from personal experience in 2011, when we were drawing the state house and the state senate maps and the state school board maps, we worked closely with our Republican colleagues. We came up with something. Uh, It wasn't perfect by any means, and it was certainly uh, influenced by our own self-interest as elected Mm -hmm. incumbents. But when it came time to draft that congressional map, the Democrats were shut out of the room, both in 2011 and from everything I've heard from members of the committee, that was true this year too, that the Republicans just said, thanks, but no thanks, we don't need your help. Now, my personal feeling is, and strong suspicion is that those maps came to the Utah State Legislature from external sources, uh, conservative or Republican sources or special interest groups. I don't know, but I'll tell you this, they didn't have meaningful Democratic input. Hey, but, here, but the rest of that story is that uh, both sides, the Democrats certainly... The rest certainly, of the story is, I printed the these off the printer at my yes, house, I, the, the, I the, the, the Democrats in. certainly have people looking at maps and demographics and that give them input in what they're doing. They They have that as well. But... Uh, Jim Hansen in 2000, he retired because he was so mad at how his map, how his district was drawn. Uh, 10 years ago, Rob Bishop was livid at the map that he Oh, I think some of the incumbents this year This year, they're mad again. And in this last 10 years, you saw Ben McAdams successfully win a congressional seat, so it wasn't unwinnable. Uh, If you're seeing the, the the members of our delegation that they themselves aren't crazy about the map, I don't know that you're giving anyone any sweetheart deal. I think it's being they're being drawn, and uh, that pushback isn't just from Democrats. You're hearing even from the members of Congress themselves. They don't like how everything's being drawn. But that's again, I think that's almost a sign that you're doing it right. If if everybody's, if everybody's mad, at mad. You. yeah. Well, God bless gerrymandering the great <laughs> country of the United States. Oh, of America. Albert Jerry, the governor of Massachusetts, had no idea that that would be his claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Well, here we are. Thank you so much for both being with us this week and talking important topics. We will be back again next week. Tell your friends about us and give us a five-star review if you're listening to us because, well, you listen the whole time. That's right.